Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we celebrate this Palm Sunday that we would remember that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who is King, who is King over all the earth. And we pray more especially that we would allow him to crown himself King in our hearts. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Just about four years ago, I had the privilege of getting to make a trip to Jerusalem, and I, I forgot a little detail about this mosque that, that I saw, but, but we know the story of the Temple Mount, right? That's where the, the, the temple used to be, the Temple Mount. <laughs> the temple used to be there, and then it got torn down, all, all the wars, and, and now there's the Dome of the Rock, and there's a, there's a mosque there. And there's actually another mosque, and I, I forgot until this morning when I, was, when I was looking at Facebook and I saw a picture that, that that mosque that is also there is actually built into the gate in which Jesus is coming down uh, from the Mount of Olives into the city. And... In, in the early 2000s, they shut the mosque down because it was really closely tied to Hamas and, and nobody was really comfortable with that. But when I was there, they had just reopened the mosque. And most of my time in Israel, I was kind of nervous because you hear all these stories, oh, people like to bomb them and they like to bomb people and so on and so forth. So I was kind of nervous about being there, but I never really felt uncomfortable until I was standing by that mosque that's built into the gate which Jesus would have come into. That's because they had just opened it, and I could tell, like, somebody doesn't want us here. And, and it was a very uncomfortable feeling. And later, the, the tour guide explained, well, they just reopened it, and so on and so forth, and there's a lot of tension because of that. But I think we've all been in those situations where there's a feeling in the air. Whether it's excitement, you can see, like, oh, these people are really excited about something, and you feel it kind of building up even in your heart, or, like... There's something bad going on here that I'm probably not supposed to be part of. Like you walk into a conversation and you're like, oh, you don't really want me to be part of this conversation. I'm going to go. Bye. So we've, we've all, we all know that feeling of tenseness. And that's the feeling that you really want to have as we read the, God, the lesson which we read outside at the Palms. Is, that, is there's a sense of tenseness as Jesus is entering into the city. Now if we read this passage carefully... It would seem that Jesus actually kind of prepared the way for him to come. He tells his disciples, go and, and find these two donkeys. They're, they're going to be there, I promise. And, and tell the owner, the Lord needs them. And it's almost a password of sorts that he's, he's already prepared, already told the owner, like, hey, I'm going to come, I, I'm going to need these donkeys. Or perhaps he simply knows that this owner will be obedient to that, to that saying. But regardless of what it is, the, the two disciples that he sends in goes in and, and they find that donkey, and, the, and the donkey, they bring the donkeys back. But we notice here that Jesus has prepared his way to enter into the city. And, and we, we so often want to kind of be the heroes of our own stories. We, we want to like say, well, I did this and I did that. And, and, and sometimes you, you even notice it, whether it's you that are telling a story or somebody else's, if it's that, that first person singular that the person keeps using, well, I did this and I did that, you realize, oh, you want to be the hero of the story. But in our salvation, we don't have that privilege. 
The reality is that Christ and Christ alone has saved you. And he is the hero of your story of salvation. Just as Jesus had prepared for the entrance into the city, knowing full well what was going to happen from going down into the city and into onto Good Friday and, of course, onto Easter Sunday, Jesus prepares your hearts for him to enter in and to change your hearts. Now, before we go on, those of you who are, are more observant readers may wonder, well, well why in, in Matthew's account of this story and Mark's account, is it a little bit different? Why is there one colt in Mark's story and two, a, a, a colt and a donkey in Matthew's story? And that's a really good question. This is just a, hey, the more you know type of thing. <clears throat> one of the things that happens in Mark's account is you note that the colt was never ridden. And you might just assume, well, maybe these are contradictory reports, but I actually think that Mark helps us to read and understand Matthew a little better. Because if the colt had never been ridden, imagine trying to ride a colt down a steep hill, which we'll get to in just a minute, that had never been ridden as people are shouting. And they are shouting the whole way down. I mean, to be kind of grotesque, Jesus would have face-planted. And so what's most likely here is that, that the owner is like, well, here, take both, take the mother so that the mother can help calm the baby colt so that this little trip down the hill that you're taking goes well. So Mark actually fleshes that out a little more for us instead of making it two contradictory statements. And Mark being Mark, Mark's the gospel of immediately. He's like, immediately, immediately, immediately. He doesn't care about these extra details like Matthew does. So the colt and the, and the mother come back, and we're told that this is to fulfill a prophecy. And this prophecy is actually drawn from two separate places, which Matthew really likes to do. Don't ask me why, because I'm not Matthew. But he draws first from Isaiah 62. And to really kind of understand why he's drawing it from it, we have to read verse 11 in chapter 62, as well as verse 12. Isaiah writes, Behold the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemer of the Lord. And you shall, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. We see if we read a little past just the kind of the, the initial part that we hear in this, in this prophecy this morning, we realize part of what Jesus is doing. He's coming to make a holy people. In other words, Isaiah is reminding him that the Messiah that's going to come is going to renew the people. He's going to give them a new heart. And he's going to remove the people from profane use. If you've, if you've read much of the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, you might remember that, that what so often happens in the prophets is much like us, Israel is, like, is walking along nicely with the Lord, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's this another shiny God over there. We're going to go over there for a little bit. Or, oh, there's another shiny God over there. Or, or they do even worse, where they kind of swindle each other out of different things. And so by the time Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah come along, they've, they've just wandered so far from the Lord that the Lord tries to pull them back through, through Isaiah, saying, no, repent, repent. And they kind of do for a little bit, and then they just go downhill, and judgment comes in the form of Babylon. And so we get to this point of hope in Isaiah. It says, no, that, that profane stuff that you've soiled yourself with, the Lord is going to put that away and draw you back and make you a holy people. 
And this is ultimately what Christ is starting to do in Jerusalem. He's entering to redeem people to be, to be returned back to being in the image and likeness of God. He is restoring you who are in Christ to the image and likeness of God. Now, the second part of this prophecy comes from Zechariah 9.9. But again, much much like Isaiah, we need to kind of read a little bit past what is going on to kind of get the full breadth of what why this is being pulled out. So 9.9 starts, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. And from river, and from sea to sea, and from river to the ends of the earth. And he shall rule from, from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Again, we get this picture that there's a little more going on in Christ entering. There is this element of Christ coming to judge those who are enemies of Jerusalem and of Israel. But it's more than simply judging. It's establishing a new rule. Christ, in entering Jerusalem in this way, is reminding us that he reigns throughout the whole world. He's establishing his reign throughout all people. What is more amazing is this view of this establishment of rule throughout people that we get in the book of Revelation. Right? If you think of the book of Revelation and you see this crowd that cries out, that praises him, and we hear that they praise him from every tongue. And what that means is is if you close your eyes and you imagine it, it's as though, yes, we would be praising in English, and then there would be those that were praising in Chinese or Japanese or Swahili or Spanish or Italian or keep listing the languages, languages you've never heard of. And my friends, if that doesn't give you goosebumps... And you do do jumping jacks before you come here next time. (laughs) That is ultimately what this is pointing us to. This is pointing us beyond the passion. This is pointing us beyond all of this to Christ's eternal reign. When those from every tongue praise his name. What an amazing view. And so Jesus comes humbly as Zechariah says, to establish his kingdom removed from the profane, meant to be God's image and likeness on earth. Jesus does not do this through the, through the use of sword or through the use of power, but he does it by laying down his life for you. The crucifixion, which we will remember on Friday, this coming Friday, was the cost to purchase your hearts. Now, I want you to imagine the scene as he comes entering into Jerusalem. I was looking out at Rosser, and I said, well, it's kind of like Rosser in my, in my outline. And it's actually, it's actually a lot steeper than Rosser that, if I remember right, it's been four years since I've walked down this 
It's a very steep hill, but if you've walked down Rosser, which I know one of you does regularly, and you can ask that person about that if she wants you to, <clears throat> it's, it's a very steep ordeal to walk down Rosser, right? That's, that's a very steep little path down to 89. And you can even feel it as you go out of the church and, and down to 89 if that's the way that you go. Now, if you imagine it, imagine now this, this little Jewish man riding on a donkey down the hill, as this big crowd starts to gather around him, and we get this image of them shouting, and I won't shout too loudly, but shouting, Hosanna! And, and, and what they're doing is they're not just saying this, this phrase once. They're not, not just saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And they're like, all right, we've done it, we're going home. No, this crowd is coming down the hill into Jerusalem, into this gate that's now a mosque that I I, I talked about earlier, to enter into the city, shouting over and over and over again, Hosanna to the the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. If If you close your eyes, you can almost picture it, right? You can almost see that happening, and, and Rosser's a good analogy for it because of the steepness of the, of the, of the road there. And, and, and they know that this man is amazing, because if we, if we think back a few weeks when we read from John, right, the raising of Lazarus really happens just a little bit before this, so they know that this man is great. He's not some backwater prophet, not some guy that they've never heard of. They know that he can do something great, even if they don't entirely grasp what he is. And so they do this amazing thing, and they throw, they throw their cloaks down, and the cloaks kind of harken back to another entrance of another king in, in Second Kings when he comes in, and, and they're, all, they're all excited that the king is coming back into Jerusalem. This, this harkens back to that image, but then also the palms, and they're making this pathway of honor into the city. Right? It's almost like in a... In, in our modern culture where you roll out a red carpet and people walk in on the red, red carpet. And so when we give you the palms this morning, it's a fun thing, right? And I hope we kind of had fun walking in. At least you aren't super annoyed with me. Um, <clears throat> but it's not just a fun tradition that we do year in and year out. The palms are more than just a fun tradition. We can take them home and we can, we can put them somewhere in our house and we can remember this entrance of Christ into the city, just as he's entering into our hearts. We can see the palm and remember that Christ is the humble king who comes into the city to transform not only the city, but you and I to transform us into images of the living God. And so the crowd is shouting this as they enter down that steep hill, shouting this praise to him. And it takes them, and we can, we can recognize that, that this has significance, right? Hosanna, we sing it, and I don't know if we've ever paused to think about, well, what, what in the world does Hosanna mean? And it's actually just a transliteration of the Hebrew word Hosanna. <laughs> but, and, and then it's, it's translated into Greek, and then we transliterate it into English. But it, it means save now. Save now, son of David. And of course, the son of David is this exalted kingly title for Jesus. 
It's an exalted kingly title because David was promised that a descendant of his would sit on the throne forever. Now, if, if you don't know much about what's going on in Israel at that time, that's okay. But the one thing you do need to know at this moment in time is that there is no son of David sitting on the throne in Israel. And so the people are longing for the son of David to come back and make all things right. And that's what they're hoping Jesus is going to do. Because he is a descendant of David. And they hope, well, maybe he's going to be the one that will drive the Romans out and set all things right. As we continue on, these words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is drawn from Psalm 118. And the end, it comes from the ending of that. And that's again this prayer of restoration. It's a prayer of restore us, good Lord. And then that final accolation, we return to that Hosanna in the highest. And it's probably something along the lines of praise, saying the one who will save us, praise him all the way from the earth to the heavens. The crowd recognizes that Jesus is a savior. And the crowd, and this is important because of what comes next, the crowd recognizes that he is a king. But what kind of savior and what kind of king? Now, another little piece of context that you need to have to understand as, we, as this tension is building and building into the city, right? Remember that description of tension? Now it's actually really building because Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. So during the Passover, you know, everybody would go to Jerusalem if they were a good Jew to offer sacrifice and to praise and pray to the Lord. <clears throat> and this meant that the Roman authorities were on edge during that time. All of Jerusalem was kind of this edgy little cake uh, powder keg, right, if, if you will. It was, it was almost ready. You could feel the tension building and building and building. And, and part of that was that the Romans were so nervous about what the Jews might do is they would send extra soldiers in to kind of try and help keep the peace, to keep the Jews from overwhelming into this nationalistic zeal that would just throw everything off and, and boil into another war. And so, so this man, this, this little man, comes, comes riding down on this donkey and people are, are yelling out this messiah, this Davidic praise to him, that he is something great, that he, he might very well be the king. And, and the crowd, I think we can imagine that it was big enough. We don't have any idea how big the crowd was, whether it was like 10 more people than the disciples or a couple hundred people. We don't, we don't really know, but it was big enough that as they go into this gate, it disturbs the city and people... Notice something is happening. Something is happening. And when we read that they were stirred up, this this verb that they use, stirred up, only happens a couple other times in Matthew, three other times, two other times to be exact, in Matthew. And the first one we actually read this morning in our, our gospel lesson. And it's when the earth shook at Christ's crucifixion. In other words, there was this earthquake at Christ's crucifixion, and it's this earthquake feeling that's tremoring through the city. And the second time is a little bit later, in 28.4, when the guards shake with fear because they realize 
that Christ is gone from the grave. Spoil alert, by the way, in case you're not following along very well. Christ will be gone from the grave next, next Sunday. But if, if you were those Roman guards and you were meant to guard the gate, the, the grave, and all of a sudden the, the stone was rolled away and, and this man was gone, the, their fate was not good. Let's just put it that way. And, and they become paralyzed with fear. And so it's this, this deep, soul-shaking sense that happens here. The city knows something is happening as this man enters in, as Jesus enters in. Now, it's really interesting, if you read Matthew carefully, there's one other time where the whole of Jerusalem does something, and it's when Jesus is born. Do we remember that from Christmastide? <clears throat> and... and at Christ's birth, specifically, the, the, the Magi come and say, well, where's the king of the Jews? And the whole city is troubled. What happens here is, is they're troubled. It's like I tell you some bad news, but it's not terrible news. Like, oh, we're not going to have Tenenbrae this year. And you're all very, we are, by the way. But you're all very sad because you love Tenenbrae. Like, that's the kind of trouble. And it's like, well, we're not going to have Easter this year because, you know, we don't believe that anymore. We do believe that we are going to have Easter. <laughs> The, the feeling would be different. You would be angry. I hope you would be angry and upset, physically upset, if we canceled Easter. If we canceled Tenebrae, some of you might be really sad. So it's this escalation that happens from the beginning of the gospel to these moments before Christ is going to be crucified. Now, this is a really interesting thing that happens here, right? Is, is the city shakes. And it can remind us that if for whatever reason we're running from Christ this morning, whether you're running from Christ because you're stuck in some sin that, that you don't want to talk about, or you're running from Christ because you don't want to believe in him, when you look at him and who he is, it can shake you in your very heart. It can disturb you. And you can wonder like these people do, is he going to disturb the status quo? Is he going to turn our lives upside down? He will. He will. If Christ, if you allow Christ to come into your life, he will upset the status quo, just as he is about to. But what he's doing in upsetting that status quo in your life is he is restoring in you the image of God that has been tarnished and tarred and damaged by our sin. If you allow Christ in, he will renew your heart. The pain and anxiety and the trouble and the heartache that you've carried for so long, he'll ask you to let it go. And he will renew your heart. And he will remove you from the profane. And make you gods. Make you to belong to God our Father. And so as the city boils up and becomes anxious with all of this happening around them, they ask, who is this man? And remember they were singing, he is, or shouting, he is a king? They kind of pull back here. They say, well, he's a prophet. The crowd that walked in with him, they knew he was more than a prophet. They had called him king, a Davidic title. 
And we can see a hint of what was about to come in chapter 27 that we read a little bit later this morning. And I think that this... Interesting question. I think that this proves and shows that Christ, that this crowd is the same crowd that turns away from Jesus. They go from praising him as king to yelling, as we did this morning, crucify him, crucify him. We see this already happening as early as verse 11 in chapter 21. They're already starting to kind of back away from him. And it reminds us that we are as fickle as the crowd We want to dwell in Christ. We want him to change us and turn us into that which we were created to be. So this week, my friends, as you approach Good Friday and approach Easter Sunday, turn your faces to the cross. Turn your faces to Christ and be renewed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.